on the other hand, maybe Attorney General Merrick Garland is on to something here. I think from now on, anybody that calls in and yells at me or sends me an email that like challenges me, I think I'm just, I think I'm going to report them as a terrorist. I think that would solve uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the problem for me, right? Just, just forward their names over to the FBI. (laughs) Apparently this is, uh, this is what the FBI is instructing law enforcement at the federal level to focus on. Yes. And I, I've seen the the meme. I don't know who did it, but it's fantastic. Um, have you seen the picture of the guys? Remember they had the big, uh, was it the one-year anniversary or something? No, I'm sorry. It wasn't a one-year anniversary. What was it? Oh, it was for the prisoners of uh, of the January 6th riots, right? The uh, They had some big protest at the Capitol or whatever a couple of weeks back, and, like, nobody showed up. There was more media there. And somebody got a picture of these dudes standing around, and they were like, Right out of FBI central casting, you know, except they were wearing shorts and uh, polo shirts, you know. And so they're all just kind of standing together talking. And so this became sort of like the joke. This is the meme that these were all the undercover FBI guys that were there (laughs) at the uh, at the protest. And so now somebody has taken those guys and superimposed them uh, into various places like a PTA meeting. (laughs) This is what we're going to do, right? God forbid we investigate, uh, you know, uh, like decades of sexual abuse, right? That the FBI dropped the ball on that. I mean, all of the things that the FBI has failed to do, has failed to catch, right? This is where they're going to focus their attention on moms and dads mad at critical race theory being uh, uh, taught in the schools. This is where they're going to focus their ref- their efforts. Now, I will say this. They have had a lot of free time. Apparently, the one good thing, did you notice that the millennials are apparently the reason why the mob is in such bad shape right now? I had no idea. So we finally found something that the millennials did that's good, I guess. They are apparently taking down the mob, millennials are. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, um, Jim Roberts uh, quoting them that they grew up at these millennials. They grew up in the suburbs instead of the city streets. And so they're quote softer, dumber, and not as loyal as mobsters of the past. Plus they're always texting. So uh, good job millennials. Just be you and you will destroy the mafia. It's pretty impressive. Um, Meanwhile, This piece at campusreform.org, written by the managing editor, fellow by the name of Zachary Marshall, who holds a Ph.D. in cultural studies and is an adjunct professor at the University of Kentucky, in a piece titled, Why Do Progressive Elites Love Open Borders, Violate Their Own COVID Protocols? This academic concept helps explain their wretched sanctimony, and the concept is patrimony, or patrimony. But uh, it is this idea that... Uh, you have certain property that is passed on from you to your uh, future generations, right? This is an academic explanation um, that uh, patrimony uh, is the property or the domain historically in a state, but it can be tangible or not tangible. It could be a philosophy, for example. Uh, But it it is uh, this idea that a certain class has something that is inherited 
by uh, subsequent generations within that social group. So once you're in the group, you get to then pass this stuff on to your progeny, right? Like that's the idea. And if you are of a certain political philosophy or party registration, you get to hold really stupid ideas and don't get challenged on them. You get to make rules for everybody else to follow. I mean, this explains all of the the um, the violations of these governors who pass all of these strict COVID rules for everybody else to follow, and then we catch them, you know, dining out or partying with their pals, and they're not following their own protocols, right? It explains Australia, and it explains the ignoring of the story by a lot of these Black Lives Matter people that were oh so worried about the rise of a police state and fascism and all of this when it was Donald Trump. Yet now, totally fine with the Attorney General issuing an edict, a memo yesterday, directing federal law enforcement to keep an eye on those parents that are disrupting the school board meetings. It also explains why the left saw no double standard at all demanding everybody stay home lest they kill grandma while also celebrating everybody not staying home and protesting over the summer of 2020. And I could never get a coherent explanation of this from anybody on the left. They just ignored it. They just ignored it because they don't have to address it because this is one of the privileges that you get, right? This is part of being in the, uh, the patrimony system. Right. This is what you get. Would that be the patriarchy? Anyway, um, the Biden administration has contempt for the unvaccinated. The president mandates Americans to be vaccinated, but then exempts illegal immigrants with those miraculously short itineraries (laughs) because they're not going to be here. (laughs) That was their explanation. They're not going to be here for a while. You know, they're just here short term. Oh, all right. So COVID knows the length of your stay, apparently, if you are an illegal immigrant. Those migrants are the ward of the compassionate woke. And consequentially, as the progressive elite's dominion, do not receive the same blame that unvaccinated Americans get from Biden for prolonging the pandemic. Does the progressive elite know better than the rest of America? Of course not. But they have the tools at their disposal to gaslight those who question their judgment. Don't be fooled by their pretense to exemption or preferred treatment. The progressive elite virtue signal mask wearing to maintain social compliance. But their claims that some people don't need their protocols while others do, that's just deceit. Okay, It's just deceit. The virus doesn't care about the political leanings of its host. I've been doing this for over a year, doing this whole COVID nose. It's a hashtag. Hashtag COVID nose. COVID knows, I literally just told some colleagues this in the hall when I was coming in today uh, into the studio, that COVID knows whether to smite you based on how high up off the ground you are. Did you know this? COVID is the smartest virus we have ever manufactured, I mean, encountered. COVID knows. COVID knows if you are seated in a restaurant, it shall not smite thee. It shall only smite thee when you stand. That's why everybody standing has to wear the mask because otherwise it doesn't really make any sense. Cause when you walk in, like, why are you standing? I mean, unless you're a server standing at the table, right? You stand up to what to leave or to go to the restroom or to come back from the restroom. In which case you're, you're moving air around as you walk. 
right? The, you can feel the air movement when someone walks past you, which is actually a good thing because it breaks up the micro droplets of the lung juice that are suspended in the air because it's lighter than gravity. I don't want to get all sciencey about it here, but that's essentially what's going on. So when you're walking, you have to wear the mask. But when you sit down and now you're sedentary, you're stationary, now all of a sudden COVID knows, up. Ah, they're eating, they're eating, and they're supporting a local business and the, the, the server staff and the, the kitchen help and stuff. And so I shall not smite thee because they are in a seated position. So what I have learned is that it has something to do with the amount of height off the ground. Anything over four feet, like you're dead. But if you're under four feet, then apparently you're safe. COVID won't smite you. There are some other rules too. Black Lives Matter protesting, COVID shan't smite you. But if you're at church, you're dead. All right, I got a couple of emails here to get to. Joseph says, Pete, what everybody knows is that if you're from the right and you do any of the things that the left routinely engages in, your life is pretty much over. No one on the right has the protection in both money and legal organization that leftist activists do. The right only acts when there's nothing left to lose, and that's getting very close we are entering the hard times that create hard men. Um, this is what the patrimony system is. This is what this author was describing, though. This idea that it's not, it's not simply a double standard. It's that if you engage in the behavior that they do, you will be destroyed. It's not a, so this idea that it's like a double standard, no, just, there are different rules that our society is seeking to enforce right now that's what's occurring and it's yeah it's it, it's very it's a very dangerous path we are on right now no doubt um brian says regarding moms and the fbi it was suburban women that elected joe biden they're getting what they wanted yeah that might be <laughs> that might be in part true um <laughs> i don't deny I don't deny it. Pete, have you seen Project Veritas last night? They exposed Pfizer scientists that admitted natural immunity through COVID infection recovery is better than the vaccine. Seems like nobody is talking about it at WBT. Everyone vaccinated and weird about it, but that's just me. Love the show. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Um, no, I do. I have a stack. Um, well, this is the Facebook stack. I haven't gotten to that either. But I, I do have a stack on the... Um, Well, this is on the budget. This is on Garland. And uh, the COVID stack, though, does have the natural immunity story. It does have that. Um, Also, remember, we're going to talk with uh, the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore. uh, That's occurring in the next hour. But uh, just just to be clear, the behavior now, because remember where all this stuff came from with uh, the FBI uh, uh, the attorney general, I should say, instructing the FBI to, you know, start looking into this and we're going to draft some, some guidelines and, you know, hold some meetings and whatever, whatever. I mean, part of this is just flexing, but it is intimidation tactic and it is, it's authoritarian. Absolutely. And it will be acceptable to the left because there are a lot of authoritarians on the left and they don't like to acknowledge that, but it's true. Um, This came about because school boards have been complaining to lawmakers. That's what it happened in North Carolina. I mentioned this, I think, yesterday, uh, most recently, uh, talking about how the school boards were all very, very 
uh, upset about how people are, you know, coming down to the meetings and yelling at them and uh, I'm scared and all this. And again, I do not condone any issuing of threats or showing up at people's houses. But I am also old enough to remember when everybody just thought it was totally fine that Sarah Huckabee Sanders got chased out of a restaurant and Rand Paul and his wife got chased down the streets of D.C. and that Ted Cruz got chased out of a restaurant and Maxine Waters told people to do it. Right. I remember this. And you guys on the left didn't care. So I don't care. I like I I'm not going to care about something that you don't enforce. You guys participate in this behavior, and so I'm not going to care if it happens to you. I would I now I would very much like to. I would very much like to join and say I condemn these people who are showing up at school board members' houses and screaming at them through bullhorns. No, it's completely unacceptable. Just like it was unacceptable when your moonbat brigade of High school students went out and camped in front of Tom Tillis's house and did the same thing, right? Or, again, blast from the past, the thousands of people who acted like spoiled, entitled children and swarmed the legislative chambers to prevent any kind of legislative business from occurring because I lost the election and I'm not happy and you shouldn't do those things. That's what you guys do. So pound sand. I don't care. I really don't care to hear it from you. Just zip it. Zip it. This is where we are. I don't like it. I don't like it, but I'm not going to pretend that there's, you know, not the caste system at play, this double standard at play. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't exist, but I'm also not going to pick up and beat my own side because you don't beat your own side. Look at... What happened? What was it um, last week? I think it was what Friday, maybe. Brought to you the story about the Twitter account being run by the North Carolina House Democratic Caucus. Right? These are the uh, the state lawmakers. They're Democrats in the House. They have a Twitter account and they post really nasty attacks on individuals. And when they got called out for doing so by Two liberals who were working with the target of the uh, the Twitter account, they were working with this person. He's a local lawyer. He's a Republican, but apparently he was, uh, I guess they had worked with him on like clean energy stuff. And so they were they were able to work with this guy. But because he criticized the House Democrats account, they uh, posted his mugshot from when he got a DUI like uh, a decade ago or something. And these two liberals were like, hey, that's rude. You shouldn't do that. And what did the House Democratic Caucus do? They left the post up. And what did the uh, the people who obviously run the account, what did they say? Well, you know, politics ain't beanbag. Right? Isn't that the, isn't that the saying that Governor Hunt used? Right? Polit- or, or easily? Yeah. Politics ain't beanbag. Toss or something. I don't know. They wouldn't have said cornhole because it was a long time ago. And cornhole really wasn't. It hadn't taken off by that point. But that's the, they make these excuses all the time. They, they, they enjoy the privilege of being able to do these types of violent and intimidating protests and tactics. And so, no, I, I, I cannot muster up outrage for now you guys getting subjected to it as well. I just cannot. That's why I really don't care. Oh, the Proud Boys are whipping up on Antifa. Okay. Well, you guys deserve each other. 
All right, so let's shift gears here. The Chamber of Commerce is withdrawing its support of the one point, bless you, the one point trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill just hours after Punchbowl News reported that House Republicans were booting the chamber from its strategy calls. <laughs> Bye. Axios.com reports why it matters. They're one of the explainer journalism outfits. And uh, they say the chamber's chief policy officer, Neil Bradley, announced the policy shift in a letter to its board of directors on Monday. The pretense for his decision is that President Biden formally linked the hard infrastructure bill with the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package during a meeting with House Democrats on Friday. So the, you know, the roads, the bridges that I heard, uh, Mick Mulvaney talking with Bo Thompson uh, yesterday about this on the morning show. Uh, the Mondays with Mick. Mick's the former uh, congressman from the upstate of South Carolina. He's former chief of staff for President Trump and the director of OMB, if I recall correctly. And he was uh, talking about how, you know, Americans dig infrastructure. It's popular. Roads, bridges, like that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's because it's traffic. And he was talking about it. And he's exactly right. It's one of the things... Uh, I will give you sort of a peek behind the curtain in radio. If you, you if you want a caller-driven topic, like if you do no show prep at all, and you're like, I got nothing, what am I going to talk about today? You can talk about traffic, and you'll have people call in because everybody has an opinion about traffic because everybody sits in it, right? So it's a popular thing, infrastructure spending. The problem is, as Mulvaney said, is that it takes a long time for people to see that it's done. This is one of the things that uh, York County did when they did, um, when I, so gosh, this is now probably what, 20 years ago. I was a young cub reporter down in Rock Hill at the, at the time. And uh, they passed their pennies for progress. It was a sales tax, right? And the idea was all the money generated would be strictly devoted to road projects and then they would put up these billboards that showed you this project is being funded by the pennies for progress vote and it was smart because it connected this thing what was his name carl gullage i think right york county chairman i think that was his name right this was the connection that they made for people to realize this is where the tax money is going so it was smart because it's going to take a long time and you know meanwhile before it gets finished you are sitting in in a road construction area <laughs> in a work zone. And that's kind of frustrating too. So the fact that um, Biden formally linked the hard infrastructure bill with the, uh, what was it? What, what were they calling it? Human infrastructure, I think is what they were calling it. This stupidity. Um, Three and a half trillion dollar budget reconciliation package um, that he did this formally. And that's supposed to be the reason why the chamber's like, oh, no, no, we're out. But people aren't buying that because, uh, the uh, what I've seen the reporting is that these two ideas, these things were always linked. So Biden formally linking them on Friday in a discussion with the Democrats, like everybody always knew that they were going to be linked. The two bills are seen as the top priorities in fulfilling Biden's agenda. They have long been linked, according to Axios. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, Pelosi described them as companion bills. So, whoa, what gives? 
Well, this is why everybody's saying is that the Republicans kicked the Chamber of Commerce out of their strategy calls, as they should. Yeah, as they should. It should have happened actually a long time ago. And if you don't understand why, you haven't been paying attention to Republican politics for a long time. <laughs> because a lot of Republican voters not too happy with the Chamber of Commerce. Um Several moderate House Republicans who'd previously planned to vote in favor of the $1.2 trillion bill also have pulled their support as well. So there's that. Um, There is also, there was a piece at Discourse Magazine, piece by Charles Blaus, Blahaus, Blahus, I think is how he pronounces that. He is the J. Fish and Lillian F. Smith chair and senior research strategist at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And uh, he specializes in domestic economic policy, retirement security. I mean, only the sexy stuff. So uh, he has a huge write-up at Discourse Magazine about uh, Congress's irresponsible health and budget proposals. Right? So this is the $3.5 trillion, the so-called Build Back Better plan. This is the plan that these... Uh, leftists have been harassing Mansion and Cinema over their lack of support for this uh, for this program. Which, by the way, um, you know, Joe Biden ran as this safe, uh, uh, you know, Democrat that you can take home to your Republican parents. He was a moderate. He wasn't some radical AOC leftist. Okay. That was his brand and how he has governed and the things that he has done since then have obliterated that. I'm not saying I was in that camp. Don't get me wrong. Like I, Joe Biden, I've never believed Joe Biden to be a moderate Democrat. Okay. Um, And so people who thought he was, they are now having buyer's remorse. And that's why you're seeing a lot of the, uh, what was it? Uh, let's go, Brandon chance. Isn't that what they were? <laughs> the let's go, Brandon chance going on. Uh, and by the way, yes, I have seen the merchandise now that is available. There's all sorts of merchandise. Let's go, Brandon, with the, the NASCAR, uh, like with the, the stripes and stuff and like checkered flags and all that. Anyway, um, so Biden is losing a lot of support because he's governing as a leftist. He's doing things and he's advancing the ball for the most radical wing of the Democratic Party. And he's getting frustrated with Manchin and Cinema because they actually are moderates, apparently. They actually have to run for re-election in states that are not left wing. And so they're not willing to go along with a three and a half trillion dollar human infrastructure reconciliation bill and them doing all of this stuff by reconciliation. He's also not a fan of blowing up the filibuster. And by the way, Manchin and Cinema are also the heat shields for a lot of other Democrats in the Senate who are cowards, who are cowards. They can't stand up and take the position that Manchin and Cinema have taken. So they're letting those two take it and take all of the heat to be followed into bathrooms, to be harassed and intimidated. When, you know, the rubber hits the road here, I'm not so sure every Democrat would vote for these things. So there's that. The proposed spending blowout is problematic in general, says Charles Blouse, but the health 
benefit proposals in particular, including further expansions of Medicare, Medicaid, and the so-called Obamacare, represent a major escalation of the fiscal irresponsibility that lawmakers have practiced for the past several years. Americans should hope that negotiators go back to the drawing board and rethink the entire approach. That's not going to happen, by the way. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Charles Blouse. 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 At DiscourseMagazine.com, he lays out three premises as to why the uh, the budget and the uh, human infrastructure uh, spending plans are irresponsible. He says, number one, skyrocketing federal debt is driven by government spending growth. Okay, so skyrock- skyrocketing debt is driven by spending. To quote Rick Santelli, stop spending. Number two, this spending growth is driven by federal health and retirement programs. And number three, the proposals currently before Congress would significantly worsen the situation. He points out that debt rose dramatically during the Great Recession, but then after the uh, economic recovery, Lawmakers failed to normalize the debt situation, continuing to float elevated debt throughout the Obama and Trump administrations. There followed another dramatic debt surge during the pandemic, and this debt is projected to grow further out of control, even if this year's budget reconciliation legislation does not add to the problem. A closer look at the trend lines shows that spending is growing persistently faster than our economic output, as measured by GDP. Even setting aside the two temporary surges in anti-recession spending, federal lawmakers are progressively losing control of the budget. And this is not a problem of inadequate taxation, he says. He goes on to say later in the piece, a notion widely propagated on social media that the only thing preventing the federal government from delivering a better quality of life to its citizens is that billionaires and corporations just aren't being taxed similarly to historical norms, This is a fiction. Its purpose is much like those of other popular fictions, to nurture a sense of grievance that can be exploited for political gain or to obscure unpalatable truths. And the unpalatable truth here is that federal spending is simply growing faster than we can afford. I'll I'll never forget, there was a great line uh, Chris Christie said when he was governor of New Jersey back before uh, Republicans hated him. He, He... Remember, he would get into these arguments with the teachers, union representatives and stuff like that at these town halls. And one of the things he said, it always uh, it always stuck with me, was he told somebody, he's like, why are you attacking the first guy that walks in the door that tells you the truth? You should be attacking the people that have been coming in here and lying to you all these years. Right. They get so mad. They were so mad at him because he was telling them the promises that were made to you are bankrupting the state now. And we're going to have to make changes lest we go bankrupt. And I agree that these are terrible uh, lies that you were told. And I'm sorry they were told to you. I'm sorry you believed them. And I'm sorry that this is happening. But I'm not sorry for telling you the truth about it. This is happening. Whether you like it or not, this is happening. And you can't just deny, deny, deny and stick your, you know, fingers in your ears and close your eyes and pretend it's not happening. A significant part of the spending growth is in 
Social Security. It's been growing faster than the nation's economic output, largely as a result of automatic annual benefit increases that were enacted in the 70s and a failure to adequately adjust eligibility ages for an aging population. Lawmakers have not fixed the situation, which will drive Social Security into insolvency if not corrected soon. Social Security has been running cash deficits since 2010. This is why, you know, my generation, I'm a Gen Xer here, and uh, I don't know anybody that's my age that thinks Social Security is going to be there for us. And it's only 20 years away for me. Um, lawmakers have not fixed the situation, which will drive Social Security into insolvency. Uh, it's been running cash deficits and uh, has contributed increasingly to federal deficits ever since. While Social Security growth remains a major unsolved problem, the proposed budget outline would not directly exacerbate it, wouldn't make it worse. However, the most problematic effects of the budget proposal comes from its changes to federal health programs. Okay, So Social Security... It's on the wrong track, it's losing money, it's adding to the debt every single year, but that's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem, Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, which is the uh, Children's Health uh, uh, Program, and the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, the subsidies. These things, the growth of these programs far exceeds what the federal budget can support. And what Democrats are proposing right now is going to destroy all of it. And I suspect that is the intent. I, from the very beginning, I sat in this chair a decade ago when Obamacare was being debated. And I argued at that time, the people who are attempting to, quote, fix it are actually intending to break it. Because once broken, then they can say, see, we tried. We just have to take it over. Because the answer for for big government statists, the answer is always more government. And so if you can break something that the government is already involved in, their answer is always going to be, let the government take it over. Let the government do more of it. And it doesn't matter if the government intervention broke it in the first place, which has been my argument for 15 years and others as well. I mean, I'm not. I'm not particularly brilliant here. I rely on smarter people to crunch these numbers like this guy did and uh, make these projections. And when you look at the math, you realize this is all unsustainable. But what they're hoping for is to break it, then you can do it. This is what Ted Kennedy talked about, by the way, when uh, he was still alive. Um, and they were, uh, you know, uh, they were celebrating him as the lion of the Senate, you know, when he wasn't, you know, sexually assaulting people or drowning women. But, um, Ted Kennedy talked about how his biggest regret, legislatively at least, was that he did not take the deal that was offered by Nixon to expand Medicare to, I think it was age 50 or 55 at the time. Because he said, had we done that, then it would have been much easier to go f- uh, to, to keep pushing the age younger and younger. It would have set the precedent, right? But he rejected it, demanding an all or nothing Medicare for all, universal health care, and he didn't get it. And uh, what he learned there was that you should take half the loaf and then keep going back to fight for the rest of the loaf of bread, right? And that's, that's a lesson, by the way, that a lot of people in politics still do not know. They still don't understand this argument. And they get mad at their elected officials 
who take half the loaf and then continue to fight for the other half. But if you take half the loaf, then you're a sellout because they don't understand the long game. They want it all right now and we should win right now. And they can't win. They don't have the patience for incrementalism. A lot of people on the left, by the way, do. Um, Lawmakers cannot promise ever-increasing federal health benefits that perpetually grow faster than the nation's capacity to finance them. No population, he says, will tolerate its discretionary income perpetually shrinking to support lawmakers' addiction to promising bigger health benefits. I'm not so sure, because that's the other part of this. If you create the universal health care system that the left wants, they then get to tax us through the nose in order to pay for it. It will be very, very, very expensive. Uncontrolled federal health spending growth has many other adverse consequences as well, including fueling health care price inflation and crowding out access to vital health care services. The largest, because by the way, I say this often too, um, when you have a limited supply, as virtually all supplies are, you either ration by access or you ration by price. And one of the biggest problems under this health care heading is Medicaid expansion, which, by the way, is what the governor of North Carolina keeps pushing for. Will he hold our budget hostage for Medicaid expansion? We'll talk to the Speaker of the House about it up next. Stay tuned. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Thank <laughs> you.